Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bonas. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. We're going to uh, jump right in, uh, talking about uh, Jubilee, uh, and we spent the first three weeks kind of like really settling into this idea of like true rest versus just checking out. Uh, and it's really interesting because when I get to like walk with people and, and, and work through this, like, how could you actually experience rest and not just check out? Uh, a lot of people talk about money and fear and financial insecurity and debt and shame. And it's like, yeah, good news for us. Uh, Sabbath and the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee really builds up into this idea of economic Jubilee. So, um, I'll begin with a question. Uh, you don't have to answer, but I think I will know for many of you. Um, have you ever felt ashamed uh, of not having enough money, not being able to go do a thing, or felt that shame before? Um, and have you ever felt uh, maybe on the other side, or I think you could feel both at the same time, but uh, protective or defensive about wealth and money, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, I was going to make a joke and be like, let's all go around and tell everyone what we make each month and how much debt we have. Obviously, that'd be horrible. That'd be a joke. But the the fact that that's like a preposterous idea really shows that um, money can be a very shame-filled subject. Um, and so before we jump into this topic, I would just like to encourage us to take a moment to breathe and remind each other that the gospel we cling to speaks of being released from shame, <clears throat> speaks of being forgiven for sin, liberated from intergenerational poverty, and unencumbered from intergenerational wealth so that we can be connected and safe together in community. We all have a history with this topic, and we all live in Calgary, one of the wealthiest cities in the world. And yet the wealth disparity is higher now than it's ever been in human history. So just because there's a lot of money doesn't mean everyone has access to it. Uh, so there ends up being shame on all sides. And we know it's a problem, but we don't have any solutions except to just not talk about it. But the Bible talks about it a lot. So uh, we'll remember that our hope uh, is in Jesus and not our economy. And our sense of value and worth comes from Jesus and not the bank. So it's okay. We can talk about it. Did you know that 11 out of 39 of Jesus' parables and one in seven of everything he ever said, as far as what we have recorded, is about the evils of wealth and God's love for the poor? Um, Jesus says in Matthew 25 that to feed the poor is to feed Jesus, and to be generous to the least of these is to be generous to God. Caring for the poor is commanded more than 300 times in the Bible. And the biblical vision of human flourishing, interestingly, looks like a world without poverty. So I really uh, appreciate uh, David introduced this idea. Um, we, did, we did this on the first week of this series, too, that um, Jesus begins his public ministry with this announcement in Luke 4. This text will come up momentarily. Um, in Luke 4, he walks into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. It's his very first public appearance, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed into freedom, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, and I love that because he's quoting from two verses in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 61 and in Isaiah 68. And I'll just uh, read to you the text of Isaiah 58, because you maybe haven't heard it in a while. Um, the prophet says, uh, on behalf of God, is not this the fast I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to release the oppressed into freedom, 
and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not hide yourself from your own kin? So this text is wild to me that it's the Jesus' like introduction. Um, because if Jesus announced in 4.18, God has sent me to proclaim good news to the poor, and if Jesus said after the resurrection, as the Father sent me, so now I am sending you, proclaiming good news to the poor is the mandate of every Christian and the mission of every Christian church. That's it. Um, but, but this is a struggle. It's not so simple. Um, in Matthew 6.24, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus says, uh, and this is such a provocative text, he says, no one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Um, if you don't, don't know this word mammon, the mammon's like the name of like a false god in the Greco-Roman world. Um, and in our Bible, though, the word there is often wealth or riches or money. Um, the idea that uh, you can't serve God and this other God, like like, sort of like God and the devil, although not a lot of people think of the devil in terms of economics, though after today they might. But um, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Um, mammon is God's sole competitor for the Christian's affection. Uh, the text is saying that you cannot serve both God and a rapacious economic system. And I think that the greatest temptation, uh, if when we look at the, the overarching theme of wealth and poverty in the Bible, the greatest temptation we will ever face as Christians is whether to choose the personal pursuit of wealth or the personal pursuit of neighborliness. Um, and the good news of Jesus is that we can be set free uh, or released from this uh, uh, false dichotomy. Um, we can be released from the tyranny of mammon to follow Jesus into the neighborhood. Uh, which is wild. It's a radical idea, and it's a controversial idea. But uh, I think in late-stage capitalism, uh, we're kind of uh, raised to think that it's dog-eat-dog -dog out there. It's eat-or-be-eaten. It's winners and losers. It's those who are getting hired and promoted and those getting fired. Um, and there's obviously going to be shame and pride on either side of that, right? Um, and there's a lot of anxiety in us because we're constantly trying to figure out which one of those I'm in and which one of those you're in. And... It's tricky. But um, Jesus disrupts the narrative by proclaiming good news to the poor and release to the captive. Uh, and I believe that this disruptive proclamation is our hope, our mission, and ultimately our end statement. So uh, there's a few scriptures. Uh, I'm going to just, this was so hard for me. I had like 10 I wanted to just show. And I'm like, okay, we're just slow your roll. Michaela, do four. And you can see the overview in scripture and pick short ones. But um, in Luke 18, 22, there's that really powerful story of the unnamed rich guy. Uh, who comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, there is still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. In the Psalms, there's a lot about uh, the poor. Specifically in Psalm 74, it says, those who despise their neighbors are sinners, but happy are those who are kind to the poor. In Proverbs 29, it says, the righteous know the rights of the poor, but the wicked have no such understanding. In 1 Timothy, moving into the New Testament, uh, he says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Uh, I read a book recently about what the early church thought of this. Um, you might remember in, in the book of Acts, like in the early chapters, there's this language of like, and then they sold everything and they lived together and there was no poverty. And you're like, wow, that sounds like some really excited people who 
2,000 years later, it's hard to like maintain, and so we kind of dismiss. Um, but you know that the early church actually for hundreds of years really, really took this seriously, this idea of um, shared wealth and uh, jubilee. Um, the early church believed that it was the heart of Christian living, in fact. They believed that a rich Christian was an oxymoron. Uh, the early church believed that there's no wealth that is neutral. In order for there to be a rich person, there must be a poor person. Someone must be exploited. And so uh, there's a quote here by St. Jerome uh, from the 4th century, uh, and, and he says, uh, All riches come from injustice. Unless one person has lost, another cannot find. Therefore, I believe the old saying is true. The rich person is either an unjust person or the heir of one. Cool, that was in the 400s. And I'm like, does he even know about the 21st century? Because it's incredible. So like, let's just think about this for a minute, because I know that's touchy, because like, we're all relatively rich and we're all relatively poor depending on who we're relating to right and we live there so um i just want to give an example of like is it possible to be really wealthy without injustice um america is or has been it depends how you track national debt i'm not sure but um the wealthiest nation on earth uh, and canada has benefited very much uh with that relationship um and and it's interesting because when you actually track like the history of like wealthy nations we realize that america uh became extremely wealthy uh for one reason, and it was not hard work or the Protestant work ethic. Um, it was because image-bearing Africans were stolen and forcibly enslaved to labor in the cotton fields and for, uh, for 200 years, and the cotton industry made the Westerners who weren't picking cotton unspeakably rich. Uh, so you can go to the next picture. <clears throat> Next slide. Oh, okay, yeah, great. Okay, so this actually, I'm very proud because I don't even think uh, David knows about this. Last year, I got to go to Bristol uh, where I'm doing my PhD, and this is the little college. It's very tiny, but it's so gorgeous. It's like the most beautiful building on a spring day. Um, I I, I kind of got there after a long airplane ride, and I was only there for three days, so it was very quick, and I was like, wow, this is so beautiful. And I was like, oh, Canada has nothing like this. Immediately, these people are better, and I'm one of them. Um, and it was really interesting because um, one of the professors there actually cautioned me and he said, hey, be careful not to admire it too much. He said, we just learned um, doing like a history of our building uh, that this building was built in the 1600s and the owner of this land owned a plantation in the US. All riches come from injustice. Uh, on the next slide, this is um, the cotton industry, a black and white old photo. So we built built a very powerful nation. So going more to like our world right now, um, did you know that there are 20 million unnecessary deaths every year caused by capitalism? Now, bear with me, that's a strong statement. But um, 8 million people every year die from lack of clean water. 7.5 million people die every year from hunger on a planet that produces enough to feed 10 billion. 3 million people die every year from curable disease, and another half a million die from malaria. And these are all preventable deaths. So any system that prioritizes the private profits of a few individuals above the needless, these needless deaths um, is an inhumane and evil system. Hoarded wealth is not only theft, but in times of extreme inequality, uh, we could say that it's murder. And so uh, when you say extreme inequality, uh, what are we talking about? I have some examples, and there's some photos that go along, so hopefully it kind of works. I just thought, oh, these are staggering stats. Um, so just you know, bear with me for a moment to feel overwhelmed. Uh, and then we'll we'll see what Jubilee says. Um, did you know that the total value of food wasted in Canada is $49 billion per year, or 2.2 million tons of food? If the food was saved, it would feed every single Canadian for five months, 
according to a report uh, by Second Harvest. Um, the annual cost of the total amount of food wasted in Canada is $1,700 per household. Um, a study in 2021 showed that 5.8 million people across Canada's provinces were living with inadequate access to food. This figure is likely much higher for the territories, particularly Nunavut, which had a food insecurity rate of 57% in 2018. There's a lot of food in Canada, but not everybody gets it. Um, next picture, did you know that um, clothing production is the third biggest manufacturing industry after the automotive and technology industry? The average Canadian throws away 81 pounds of clothing per year. It is estimated that around the world, about 107 billion units of apparel and 14.5 billion pairs of shoes were purchased in 2016. Uh, and three out of five ended up in a landfill the same year they were purchased. Yeah, 93%, here's the disparity. You can go to the next photo. 93% of clothing brands do not pay their garment workers a livable wage. Uh, the next one, next photo. Um, did you know that uh, eight men control 50% of the world's wealth? The poorest 50% of humanity have access to just 8%. Uh, Jeff Bezos, you probably hear that name a lot. Um, uh, he's the CEO of Amazon. He's worth an estimated $130 billion, making him the richest person in the world. He makes approximately $2,489 per second. Per second. More than twice what the median U.S. worker makes in a week. He could stave off starvation for 40 mil 42 million people across 43 countries with a one-time donation of $6.6 billion, or 3% of his current net worth. But he won't. He won't. He could, but he won't. We know that. And that's, he won't because capitalism was never designed to solve poor people's problems. Capitalism was designed to create them. Capitalism depends on debt and high interest. It's necessary. Without high interest, there's no capitalism. Capitalism depends on your ability to qualify for as much debt as possible. And then once you do, you're officially an adult. I'm going through this now. Um, which means now all of your energy can go into paying off your high interest loans and then protecting the stuff you worked so hard to possess. And then none of us have any extra time, energy, or money to work towards the common good. And then loving your neighbor is just a nice thing we say. So Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You can't. There's another image here. I was just looking at Calgary housing. And then I was like, oh, this is risky. Maybe we know some of these people. but. Um, not both Calgary, but the image on the left you probably know. Uh, these were um, just two buildings in uh, indigenous reservations in Alberta. This is a club. There's a lot of people who have a lot and a lot who don't. But then this kind of raises the question, how could a group of 50 people in Bowness be more than a raindrop on a raging Amazonian forest fire of corruption and systemic hopelessness? What could we possibly do? Um, I'm going to share a story, and then I'm going to say that I actually think that we could do something huge. Um, so here's a photo, and it has my face on it, and it will get weird after a minute, but it's okay. Um, so last year, I had the great honor of being gifted uh, a ceremony name uh, from a Cree elder locally at a sweat lodge just south of Calgary. I had been journeying with this community uh, for several years uh, through David, who was kind of working for an organization that kind of uh, ran uh, cultural rehabilitation efforts. Um, and I was learning so much uh, about indigenous culture and ceremony, and it was just such a lovely time to go out into the, on the land for a while. Um, and a few months uh, before I was going to be given a name, the elder told me that I had to bring a gift. And he explained that in his culture, they believe in gift giving, not wage earning. So he said, the, the ceremony does not cost anything. 
but you must bring a gift. And I was like, oh, same thing. Uh, but I was in for a huge lesson, so wait for it. Um, this was like one of the most shocking uh, spiritual moments of my life as a Christian. Um, so I made a quilt. It took me like 100 hours. If you've ever quilted, it's a ton of work. Um, and I knew that this would be a very special gift, and so I came to the sweat lodge early, and I pulled the quilt from the bag, and I was like, yeah, look, look, at, look at how great I am. And he said, oh, it's beautiful, great, keep it in the bag, thank you. And that was it. And I really wanted him to marvel at my artistic abilities and my dedication to the ceremony, but he did not allow me that. And then later on, inside the lodge, I watched the elder give my quilt away to an older lady in front of me. He had draped the quilt over the top of the lodge, um, and this older uh, woman uh, saw it when she came in, and she was like, wow, that's a beautiful quilt. Um, and he said, oh, it's a gift, and he gave it to her. And I was irked, because I didn't get it. Um, and she was holding it closed, and she like was soaking in the goodness of this special gift, uh, and I was over there feeling like chopped liver, like, you didn't even tell her I made that. Um, so later on, I confronted him. Hopefully you're getting the sense here that like I was not in Kansas anymore. Um, I, I confronted him. <clears throat> I said, Gukum, why did you give my quilt away? Uh, it was a gift for you. And with a twinkle in his eye, he laughed and he said, you gave a gift, Nikayla. Gifts are forgiving. He said, white people don't live in community. You don't have a people, so you don't know about gifts. Um, uh, for, for them, uh, gifts were everything. He said, this woman here is uh, uh, my family. And you know what? In the next couple months, someone will be at her house, and they will notice the quilt, and they will say, wow, what a beautiful quilt. And she'll say, it's a gift. Here, it's for you. And that person will feel elated to receive such a precious gem, and they'll wrap themselves in the quilt. And several weeks or months later, the same thing will happen. And that quilt, for as long as it exists as a quilt, will continue to be a gift. It will move through the entire community for many years. And Nikayla, if you were one of us, You'd be an old lady one day, and you'd show up at the sweat lodge, tired and sore, and you'd look and see a young mother over there holding a baby wrapped in an old, tattered-up quilt. And she'd look at you, she'd call your grandmother, and she'd say, this is a gift for you. A true gift never ceases to be a gift. Immediately, my mind is remembering every single verse in the Bible about gifts of God, and I was like, what? I went to seminary and Bible college and the Bristol school. Anyway. It gets better. He, um, I was inspired by this mindset, but then what he said next really um, struck me. He said, um, you are a Christian, right? And I said, yes, I'm a, a pastor uh, in a, a church in Bonas. And uh, he took a drag of his cigarette, and he was like, mm, don't you know, uh, only demons possess things. I learned that in your residential school, he said. You know what, Nikayla, once your quilt becomes a possession, it gets folded up and put in a closet. And when the person you gave it to dies, their kids bring it to goodwill. He said, I asked you to bring a gift, not a possession. I invited you to become one of us. If you stay and put down your roots, you will watch your quilt bring many people joy. It will maybe even inspire you to start making more quilts. Start finding more and more ways to live the giving way. Um, and I remember I was given a name, and it was lovely, and I felt so honored. Um, and since then, I've noticed how often I say, like, oh, this is so cool. And then someone at the sweat lodge is like, oh, it's for you. And I'm like, oh, cool. What are the odds? And I, I get it now. Um, and interestingly, I've had uh, some of you at my house. And you're like, oh, this, this is so cool. This is so great. And I'm like, it's for you. Um, but stick around, because I'd love to still have access to that. But, uh, but it's a discipleship process. Um, I think about it often. And that teaching uh, that I received that day really reminded me of the text in Acts 4. So on the next slide, um, and there was a whole group of people uh, part of Awaken once upon a time um, 
and many are still, uh, who lived in a community house called the House of Commons just a block away, and their whole thing was based on this text. In Acts 4, it says, Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of possessions. But everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and the great grace was upon them. There were no poor among them. For as many had owned lands or houses, sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Luke is actually citing this most powerful text in Deuteronomy 15. I would say that this might be my favorite uh, text in the Bible. It's one of two major Jubilee and Sabbath texts, and I highlighted some words in red, and I might explain that in a moment. We'll see. Um, but this is this really cool Jubilee text, and so it's 15 verses long, so bear with me. It's two slides. Um, in Deuteronomy it says, At the end of every seven years you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. Then he says, you may require payment from a foreigner. And like, you know, Westerners were like, ooh, I don't love that. And then we remember, so if the indigenous people are like, my white boss owes me money, I don't need to forgive that. Like just location of power. These were like occupied peoples. Um, uh, you may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. However, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God uh, and are careful to follow these commands, like the Jubilee and Sabbath commands I am giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. And you will rule over, because you'll be a jubilee people, and you'll be like the nation everyone wants to be a part of, because there's no poverty. Uh, but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They might appeal to the Lord against you and you would be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. What? It's a circular, it, it's really. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. He's like, and it's not a one-time thing that you just do one time and then make like a huge promotional event about it to grow your church. It's like an ongoing thing. Like, there shouldn't be any poor people among you if we, like, manage the resources God has gifted us with well, but there will be, so you've got to keep managing it well. <laughs> it's really beautiful, and you, you probably are like, oh, is that what Jesus was quoting when he said in, to the woman, like, the poor will always be with you? Yeah, he was totally going to the disciples being like, now you care. That was the line. So he says, um, <clears throat> therefore I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years in the seventh year, you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. This is the three major economic outports in ancient Israel. <laughs> We're going to give them oil and gas stocks. We're going to give them grain, uh, uh, agriculture stocks. Uh, like, that's what it is. These aren't just like, give them a little gift basket and be like, thanks for slavery. That's not it. That's not it. Um, he's saying, give to them as the Lord your God has given to you. 
remembering that you yourselves were slaves in Egypt and how did the Lord your God redeem you? This is why I give you this command today. It's the most urgent text in the Bible. Um, he, he's saying, I will bless you so that you can literally bless everyone who has need. And when you forgive someone of their debts, don't just forgive their debt, but give them liberally so that when they depart from you, they're as rich as you are. In Acts 4, the disciples have just had a Pentecost experience, planting that seed, and feel such reconciliation, intimacy, and belonging that they literally flow with jubilee and sell their possessions and turn them into gifts redistributing the gifts of God until there were no poor among them. So how do you know you've preached good news to the poor? They cease being poor, and they start being neighbors. The early church begins with jubilee. Awakened church has been called to the same. So um, what is the next slide? Just anything more beautiful? Okay, yeah, that's fine. Um, uh, jubilee is the antithesis to capitalism, if you think about it. Jubilee is only possible in a gift economy. Jubilee is only possible among a people who have repented of their idolatry, who have denounced their allegiance to mammon and turned towards one another, viewing image bearers as being worth more than our stuff. Jubilee is only possible in a community that sees a God who made the world, loved the world, and on the seventh day delighted in the world, a creator among beloved creatures. Jubilee is only possible in a community that sees the laborer as an image bearer. Jubilee affirms the value of each human being regardless of their ability or efficiency or productivity. Mammon says your value to society is dependent on your ability to serve the economy. In Mammon's economy, disabled, queer, immigrant people are treated as burdens on society. And the able-bodied citizen is the most valuable. The able-bodied father, who works 50 hours a week at a job he hates that is destroying his own body and the world, is a hero in Mammon's system, um, and his wife, who is at home, ensuring that he is free to serve Mammon and not be distracted by things like laundry and meal, meal planning, um, is a virtuous wife in Mammon's, Mammon's system. Um, Sabbath rest isn't possible in Mammon's world, or Pharaoh's world, or Caesar's world, or Jeff Bezos' world, because Sabbath rest comes from a place of delight, of loving what God loves. Mammon creates these death-dealing like gender roles and social hierarchies, uh, and everything comes down to how hard you can work, how much capital you can generate, and how successfully you can protect and defend your assets, the assets of your employer, and the assets of your nation. Countless men have died fighting Mammon's wars. Countless women have gone numb under the tyranny of Mammon's womanhood. But Jubilee... Jubilee spins the wheel the other direction and releases us from the grip of mammon and turns us towards one another. And there's release and freedom. And um, the biblical story is just a repeat of this story over and over. Um, there's a quote by St. Ambrose of Milan. I really love this one. Um, he criticized Christians for their like charity work. And he said, you are not making a gift of your possessions to the poor. You are handing over to him what is his. So the question becomes, um, how can we be a Jubilee people here and now? Like, who's going to go talk to Jeff Bezos? Right? Um, but <clears throat> I think biblically, we have a really solid case and very uh, beautiful, practical ways that we could be a Jubilee people. So I'm going to do something I don't usually do um, before inviting uh, Glendon up to lead us in communion. I'm just going to do four practical, on the ground, I'm looking at like the business student. I'm like, Eric, this is for you. Thought of you a lot. Practical ways we can be a Jubilee people.
We might not be able to convince Jeff Bezos to give everything away. Uh, and we probably aren't going to be able to sell everything we own and move into a commune, right? That's not, that's not the, the pitch here. Um, but just because we can't dismantle the entire system in one go doesn't mean we should mindlessly float down the stream numbing ourselves to the terror with our addictions and impulsive behaviors and unresolved trauma. Uh, checking out isn't Sabbath. Laboring 40 soul-sucking hours each week isn't what Jesus called us to. Um, so so if, if that's what we do, and, and by necessity some of us have to, so there's no shame in that. It's like, oh, the system is rigged. We can call it total depravity. It's totally rigged. Um, Jesus seemed to labor for six days from a place of love and commitment and imagination for a future we could all share. And then he taught us a Sabbath that looked like a glimpse of the kingdom. Each week, like a dress rehearsal for the big day when the Sabbath that starts doesn't end. Um, so four very simple tips, and they're going to start super simple, and you'll be like, oh, and then it'll get really complicated, and you'll be like, I like it, but it's hard. Um, hopefully, we'll see. One, first thing you can do starting today or tomorrow, walk through your house, scroll through your bank statement, survey all that you have, and ask yourself how much you need, and confess to yourself how much useless stuff you were tricked into buying, thinking it'd make you happy or better. And then, like, we'll just talk about it. Like, just to yourself, even, just to yourself. Like, you're just like, I'm going to look at the number on the bank statement, on my bank. Like, you look at it. And one of the first things we can do as Christians, as a community, is to destigmatize it, to talk about it, to confess, repent, and trust that there could be freedom on the other side of talking about it. We could talk about money. Money doesn't own us, it doesn't own us. I'm allowed to talk about it. We can talk about it. We could destigmatize the topic and start shining light into the dark corners. So I'm just like, yeah, I wonder if anybody in my life knows how I make, how much I make or how much I spend or what that journey's been like. And I'm like, a church seems like a lovely, safe place to be able to destigmatize and just share. Okay, number two, <clears throat> ask for help. Listen to like the most wild anti-capitalist thing you could ever do. Ask for help. Uh, capitalism teaches us or mammon teaches us that extreme self-sufficiency and hyper-independence are virtues. But if we think about the gospel story, uh, maybe they're not virtues, and they're actually quite antichrist. Um, Jesus taught us to boast in our weaknesses, to boast in our limitations, and to lean on community. Asking for help is radically uh, an act of resistance. So think about it. At Awaken, we're all, we all live in the city. Like We're, we're all friends. We know each other. Um, you could buy, uh, rent a car the next time your car breaks down. You could. Um, or you could ask if anyone at Awaken has a car that you could borrow for a week. You could buy the thing that you need one time because your brother-in-law Bill is in town. Or you could go on the Ace page and be like, I need a pair of men's skates, size nine. Great, here's some skates. We could share our stuff in common. Um, I need a new bike. Or I need to borrow your lawnmower. Imagine this, you probably mow your lawn 12 times a year. So do we all need our own lawnmower? Probably not. We could share. I've almost never bought Ember and Raven clothing because your kids grow out of their clothes. I have not bought a Banff Park Pass in years because I share one with all of you. I don't know if you knew that was happening, but... Um, <laughs> I love camping, but I only have half the gear that I need because I have all of you outdoorsy folks. Sharing things in common is radically anti-capitalism and radically Christian. So we could begin to share and begin to view things uh, we own not as possessions but as gifts. And then when we start sharing, uh, we would start gifting. Maybe you'll make a quilt or a bench or a casserole and then give it away. Just give it away. 
and resist the lie that you need to be the gift giver and never the gift receiver. Boast in your limitations. Imagine your neighbor loves you as much as he loves himself. Imagine God is with us and that everything we have is a gift and gifts are forgiving. Three, get to know your neighbors. Don't compete with them or try to reach down to them. Sit across from them. Look them in the eye. Love them. Find out what makes them weep and what makes them laugh. And when you see suddenly that they are a gift of God, don't hide your admiration. Tell them. Literally name the good things you see in them. Love them the way you love your own family. Imagine a future with them. And I mean literally get to know your neighbors this week. Notice yourself noticing your neighbors. Right now I'm already like, I have the most dandelions of everybody on my street. And then someone else gets worse. And I'm like, oh, thankfully I'm not the trashiest person. That's not how you think about your neighbors. But I'm like, oh, thank you. Thanks for making sure I'm not at the bottom. And I'm noticing myself thinking this. And so I realized this week, I want to learn more about my neighbors. I want to learn what their, their longings are for. And I want to learn um, what it means to be in community with them. Um, number four. And then there's, there's one more after this. <clears throat> and this one is such a plug, but it's OK. Michelle's not even here. Join the Awakened Garden Collective. And just listen. You might have a garden in your own place, but just hear it out. Begin to notice the land. And it's what Becky said at the beginning. Gives away free food. Just gives it away. She's just like, take and eat. <laughs> she knows nothing about wages and meritocracy. She just gives herself away. So we could grow as much food as we could. We could eat as much nourishing food as we could ever need. Free, tasty food. And then we could give as much of it away as we can, or we could cook a feast and invite as many people as we can. See, I could go buy my tomatoes from Superstore. I could. That's right. But did you know that um, those tomatoes are grown in Southern California in soil that is being kept right now on life support in the form of chemical fertilizers and pesticides, and the employees are Mexican temporary workers being paid nothing to do backbreaking labor in a hazmat suit because of the life support system that we've decided is sustainable. And um, he has to do that because his economy has been destroyed by our worship of fast, easy, and cheap. So it's not just buying a tomato. You're never just buying a tomato. Um, so right here in our garden, there's more food will grow than the 15 people who volunteer in it will be able to eat. The land right here is teeming with life. And so imagine with the, the garden and the common cupboard, what if just every single time we came to this building, you grabbed a banana and a fruit cup from your fridge and you put it in the cupboard? Um, and every time we did it, we weren't like, OK, I'll give my food away. I'd be like, OK, I guess I'll give poor people their food back. Um, unless food's never gone rotten in your fridge, ever, that's probably the attitude we should have. Like, OK, you can have this back. Um, and then realize, what else do you have that we could give kind of back to the first one? Extra bikes, tires, room in your garage, room in your house, spot at your table. And we could start to give our stuff away. A full-blown exorcism of the self. Soul care deliverance for the gifts of God we've hoarded in our storage lockers and our savings accounts. And lastly, <clears throat> and I never thought I would say this, and I'm, it's okay. Let's reimagine tithing. Okay. Now, I'll never guilt or shame someone into tithing. Um, that's not a Awakens mission at all. Unless you've been here for several years, you probably don't even know how, or that that's a thing. You've never heard it. Um, you can be a member of Awaken or an elder or a preacher without ever tithing. Uh, no one knows those numbers. That's never, you're never going to be guilted or pressured into that. Tithing is not the wage you pay to belong here. Uh, nor is it a, a wage you pay to get an extra vote. <laughs> it's not. Um, 
tithing it could be seen as a gift. Imagine the $50 you give doesn't become a possession, but remains a gift. Imagine our church as an alternative economy. So imagine we could put some of our money together, maybe all the money we save from sharing all our stuff and growing our own food. Um, we put it into a common purse, and you do that because it's a community you trust and you love and you feel safe in. And then you know that your voice matters and you get to engage and invest and help decide how we're going to give it away. And we get to do that together. It'd be so much more fun than just like, fine, here's five bucks. Like, it'd be so much better. Um, and I really think we have the means to do it, to be a radically forgiving people. And in case it's not obvious, it might not be, but this is not because I'm looking for a raise or I'm really hoping to be the next Kensington Commons. That's not it. I want Sabbath rest with my people and my neighbors. And I think we could do that. Did you know uh, the members of Trinity Moravian Church, uh, the next image here, the, maybe you saw this online a few weeks ago. Um, it blew my mind. I was like, oh, we can do it. The members of Trinity Moravian Church in North Carolina got together last year and purchased $3.3 million of local residents' medical debt, uh, which benefited 3,355 families. And they purchased the $3.3 million of debt from third-party credit collectors for 15 grand. Right? Because if you haven't paid your debt, a credit agency starts calling you, and you understand how that happened? You owe 10 grand to like the hospital, and the hospital's like, we only technically need a thousand of this. The credit agency is like, great, we'll buy it. Here's a thousand bucks. Then we get to go and hunt those people down to get the 10 grand. And then they pocket nine grand. That's how it works. So this church was like, could we just buy it for a thousand and then burn it? And they did. They bought $3.3 million of debt for $15,000. And then they held a debt jubilee ceremony and burned up the debt, canceling it all with confetti and music. And they're not alone. In 2019, a church in Indiana paid off $4 million in local medical debt and a Cincinnati church this, uh, in 2020 forgave $46 million of in medical debt, reaching 45,000 people in their area. And I'm like, can we do that? I don't know about money and, and um, whether health care is free or not for long. I don't know about medical debt and how that works. But I'm like, could we, maybe someone here would volunteer to research that and figure out how that works in Calgary, because obviously you can buy debt for cheap. And then I got, I went off a little while. Then you guys were like, hmm, Nikayla does not understand how money works. So just enter, allow me this for two seconds and then I'll, I'll wrap this up. Um, imagine we had a line in our budget called Jubilee and it was a 50 year plan. What if we said 50 years from now, we're going to pay off the debts of everyone in bonus? And then someone was like, that's way too much, Nikayla. That's insane. And I'm like, okay, what if in 50 years we pay off the debts of our neighbors, the house on either side of us? So if there's 40 households here, that would be the debt of 80 households. Okay, that's too much. All right, maybe the 80 poorest households in bonus in 50 years, we're going to pay off all their debt. And I'm going to say maybe that's $10 million. And we have 50 years, which would be about 100 bucks a month from 100 people for 50 years, and we'd have $10 million. More with inflation and investments and all that. But that, imagine that $10 million becomes transformed into a gift and alters the course of thousands of people's lives in, into the next generation. Imagine the phone call. Sir, uh, you're released from all of your debts, everything. Visa, line of credit, mortgage, student loans, all of it, you're forgiven. They'd be like, what? Why? And we'd be like, because I'm, well, we were once poor, but our debts were forgiven, and that made us want to proclaim good news to the poor. And it made us want to proclaim the forgiveness of sins in our neighborhood. So all the shame you feel around money, let's just be released. Um, and this is wild, because did you know that what if every church did this? There's more churches in Bonest than any other neighborhood in the city. So say 30 churches did this, and 50 years from now, we had $300 million. In 50 years, I'll be 85 if I live uh, that long. 
Uh, but Harriet will be 54. Kyra will be almost 53. And they would have watched their whole life what it means to be raised in a gift economy. And I'm like, imagine if we discipled those little ones to be a jubilee people. And imagine they knew the size of the gift God had given us. And imagine they received the gift and spent their life growing up so excited to give it away again and again and again, every generation, every 50 years, if we did this one time, it would ignite a revolution and the church across the globe would join in and every Christian everywhere would suddenly be like Mother Mary, pregnant with jubilee, weeping. He has brought the ruler down from his throne and lifted up the lowly from generation to generation. We could do it, I think, and I think it starts with community. Community.